Hello, and welcome to the horror. Hi, I'm Owen Edgerton. I really like horror movies. And I'm Russell Sharman. And boy, do I not like them after what I just saw. Oh, my goodness. But before we jump into today's classic, uh, emphasis on the sick, we have a special guest on the horror. Which is very exciting. It I'm is. very excited to have yes. a special guest. We usually, we only have one PhD, one doctor. Uh, which is Dr. Russell Sharman. But today we have my brother-in-law and the person who gifted me with my own physical copy of Basket, Ca Basket Case, Professor of Philosophy, Dr. Brett Sherman. Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. This is where we have that fake applause line as we introduce him. We'll, we'll add that later. Do we, are we, can no, you do probably, that? Do we have a budget not. for that? Probably not. Uh, welcome, Brett. <laughs> so glad to have you. I'm sure you'll be on my side. Uh, of course not, but yes. <laughs> Brett, actually, he really did. He sent me the copy of Basket Case sometime back. And man, oh man, I, it was actually a whole, I was aware of the movie, of course. And uh, and I had never actually watched it. And I've now watched it several times. In fact, Brett and I watched it last night, playing on the volume so that the kids were not upset by the, the screaming. R Russell, tell us about your experience. Well, f first, actually, let's give a quick word of what, what Basket Case is. For those who don't know, because it's not necessarily the classic that we've had before. This one is a little lesser known. 1982 film, Frank uh, Helen Lauder. I think it was his first feature uh, film to do. A story of uh, a young man trying to make his way in early 80s New York City. That's, that's basically the story. And he's also joined by his uh, removed monstrous twin who uh, they set out uh, to take revenge on the doctors who split them apart. It's, it's a coming-of-age story, if anything. Uh, y yes, yes, I suppose you could call it that. Um, but first, before we d d talk about how I feel about this movie, I guess you'd call it. Well, um, you're <laughs> I want to know from Brett. So, Brett, you introduced Owen to this, to this to whatever it is. Um, maybe you could tell us, how, how did you come to this Film. I have a hard time saying the word film. How did you come to this piece of entertainment and then feel the need to pass it on to Owen? That's a good question. So, uh, you know, I, I don't really know exactly, but I, I vaguely remember going to the video store when I was a kid. And back then, you know, they had the VHS boxes out. And so you kind of get to know the cover art associated with it. And I, I kind of knew of the movie from back then. And, uh, Saw it at some point along the way, somehow, and uh, it's one of those movies that sticks with you. So <laughs> it seemed like something Owen should own. But yeah, I, I, growing up, I was into horror movies. This was, you know, one of many that I had seen. And so uh, at some point, I don't remember when exactly. So, so this was not just like you saw this on the shelf and thought, well, I'm never going to watch that. But Owen, this would be fun to send this to Owen. You actually have a special place in your heart for this this movie. Oh yeah, no, I saw it and then thought to myself, Owen, Owen ought to watch this and own it. And you know what? Both decisions to see it and to think I would love it were both correct. Okay, um, where to start? Where because I we've been thinking. I I know I've been thinking. I believe Brett has as well because I got to say this one's a little. It's a little different than defending the thing which defends itself. And I certainly appreciated much about the thing you know my issues with the thing is as as you all know 
uh, had to do with the slimy puppets. And it's as though it's as though you just took those parts <laughs> and made a movie about them. Okay, did you just you just watched this today, right? I just finished it. Like minutes ago? Like five minutes ago? Yeah. So I'm still processing. I'm still processing and and in, in some ways I have to say all joking aside the the final 11 minutes with the the rape murder and full frontal male nudity well there's that uh which I always enjoy uh it definitely takes a turn that uh I found I mean up to that point I was amused and then I was mm. disgusted but mm. let me start by saying so I found this on iTunes and two things strike me about this in my first impressions of the film. First of all, it's categorized under comedy, not under horror on iTunes. Yeah. Thought that was interesting. And if you see it as a comedy, I think there, it's somewhat defendable as a comedy because <laughs> it is kind of funny. But also the, the first title of the version I saw, I don't know if this is true of the VHS copy that you got, is that this is a presentation of the Museum of Modern Art? Yes, yes. <laughs> that has been preserved by the MoMA for some I I don't know ar archival reason. How about your film? Was your film is your film at the MoMA? Russell? <laughs> Apparently, is it? it's too good to be <laughs> to be in the MoMA. <laughs> yeah. So it, so then as I started to watch it, I honestly honestly I thought for for a moment this is the culmination of some long con practical joke that Owen is playing on me that somehow, <laughs> even though the podcast was my idea, that somehow he convinced me, tricked me into doing a horror podcast. And then five episodes in, he would make me watch this movie <laughs> and talk about it. Well, there could be something to it. I, I, I definitely, I took specific glee in, in, in following up the exorcist with basket case. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, you talk about it being in the comedy section. When the film was first released, um, there were some different cuts, and it played a lot of times on Times Square. As you can imagine, we talked about, I mean, you get a picture of, of old Times Square. Perhaps, I don't know of a film maybe that does it better, of giving the feeling of old Times Square. But um, this played for midnight so a long time. And, and when it was first, actually, first sort of put out, uh, it did some festivals. Joe Bob Briggs saw it. And Joe Bob Briggs, of course, is still a promoter of films. He loved it. And then they recut it and tried to make it more horrific. They cut out the comedy parts. And he was like, what? Are you kidding? No. Listen, I want to have a Texas premiere of this at this drive-in in Texas, but you have to put it back the way you had it. You have to you have to uh, so, save that sort of humor horror aspect of it. And and they did. And he's been a promoter of it ever since. And and actually, he plays it on his marathon, you know, his Joe Bob Briggs, uh, The Last Drive-In Marathon, uh, and has some great things to say about it. So it definitely, the comedy is intentional. There's a lot of, of cool humor in there. And you... You saw that, yes? Oh, of course. No, I laughed out loud a few times watching it by myself in the computer lab here at the University of Arkansas. Ha, as, there, as every horror movie should be watched. Per, <laughs> perfect surroundings, perfect setting. Def, definitely obvious intentional humor, which I which I appreciated. Uh, I, you know, obviously now I'm watching these movies and I'm thinking as I'm watching, okay, I've got to come up with a favorite scene. I've got yeah. to come up with a favorite scene. <laughs> Uh, and I, I'll get to what I guess I'm going to choose. But for a while there, one of the leading contenders was one of many scenes. Uh, uh, an oft-repeated trope of this movie is, oh, he's not in the basket. Where is he? 
it's like hide and seek with, uh, you know, the blob. Uh, and he's in the toilet. That that obviously that's a great moment. That was funny. That was really funny. Yeah, and you probably got the existential philosophical meaning of that. So I don't even need to describe it. Uh, that the movie is in the shitter. Oh, um, so, <laughs> but actually, that brings up an important important question that I want to turn over to Brett. You know, Brett, you're you're a, a philosopher. Sure. I mean, by trade, uh, a professional philosopher. And in these conversations, Zoe and I have had in the past few weeks, we often sort of uh, allow these movies to trigger bigger conversations, thematic conversations, the exorcist about the crisis of faith, uh, the thing about do we even know ourselves? Please tell me something to hold on to as a philosopher. How do you come at this film? Or do you even, do you just set that aside? you turn that part of your brain off? Or is there something that, that, that you're seeing that I'm not? about the deeper meaning of this movie? Good question. Good question. So I, I would say um, when I watch the movie, I don't think of it as a, a philosopher. I just let the movie wash over me. I experience it, you know, as it comes. And uh, that said, I have a couple comments. So comment number one. Um, it's so damn good. It, yeah. That's... <laughs> is that, is that, that what you're going to say? Sure. Yeah. That's comment number one. <laughs> Yeah, I, no, I would say, I would say, I definitely say, to me, the strength, I really do like the movie. The strength of the film is not that I walk away sort of uh, understanding some aspect of the world better than I had before. To me, it's, it doesn't work on that level. But I think if you wanted to kind of write about the film, and if, if you wanted to sort of explore some of the deeper meaning, I think you can do that. Um, one, one way that you might look at the story as a whole, is to say, this is a story, at least on one level, about a person who has a fear of getting involved in relationships because of some secret that he knows is going to come out. Oh. And that's something mm. that can generalize in a lot of different ways. And, and you might see the film as being like taking that idea, that sort of core idea, implementing it in this particular way, and then just sort of treating it straightforwardly and letting it run its logical conclusion. Um, but that's something that that does then end up sort of uh, feeding the main plot line. And you might argue that even the final shot of the film, where it's a sort of vertigo-like yeah. final shot. Um, I think Hitchcock stole, stole How this. dare you? How <laughs> dare I, you compare this movie yeah, If I remember to Hitchcock's DVD uh, director's commentary, he said, it wasn't until watching Basket Case I knew what a film could be. That's right. right. That I quote? think that's right. That's yeah. a quote. <laughs> so, but but you have that though when Belial, I guess, is, yeah. is, is is simultaneously killing his brother and and holding his brother from the fall. That's right. And then they fall into this death pose, and uh, and they're sort of reunited in some sense. And th there's one set. There's a sort of long running theme in the film about whether we're really dealing with two people or one. Mm -hmm. And uh, so are these like two aspects of the same person in some sense? And that comes up in the father's conversation with the aunt. Right. Um, but also the way in which they communicate with each other, sort of the way in which you might have a conversation in your own head. But they, you know, they end up coming apart, but then they do get reunited in that final death shot. You know, it's mm. interesting you bring this up because one, and again, I'm still processing, but one thought that occurs to me is the the Bilal or Belial or whatever the, the name of the thing is. Uh, it, 
is a manifestation of his id. Sure. And, yeah, it's totally that. Yeah. And the, and the the fact that his id can speak to him telepathically, but he can't communicate with his id. I I could see that as kind of profound. That uh, that is an aspect of our personality that seems to you know work on us in a certain way, but we feel we can't control in the same way that they can control us. It can control us. Ooh. Uh, and, and yeah, go on. Sorry, Russ. No, no. I, I, I want to stop talking because the more I talk about it, the more it'll sound like I appreciate the film. Well, so far <laughs> I'm hoping someone is listening to this who has never seen the films. Like, Whoa, I got this in there. Oh. And did you notice that I was wondering, Russ, if you notice the Christ imagery, because there's quite a bit of it. So, for example, he's got this huge scar on the side of his body. Well, who else has a scar on the side? Oh, Jesus was, right, scarred on the side of his body. And then also, if you notice when Casey, who's sort of the uh, the sweet, loving prostitute who lives two doors down, when she puts him on his bed after his night of drinking, he's positioned out, arms outstretched, legs crossed, like Christ on the cross. And then, of course, he is willingly taken, uh, takes upon his sins, his id or his Jungian shadow self, uh, hanging, hanging above the world. So, uh, I mean, I don't, if you don't like it, that's okay, but this is the gospel. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Okay, sure. You've completely changed my mind. I now love all horror. (laughs) Um, So I I guess what I'm hearing from both of you... And you will immediately disagree. Is that you basically turn off your brains and just w- let these images wash over you? Because I can't imagine if you thought too much about it, you would really enjoy uh, the acting. The, like, oh is my, any part okay. of the performances anything other than laughable? Oh no! Whoa! Okay, I would. I, 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 our guest. I want to let our guest answer, but I've I've got definite opinion, definite opinions here. Go, so well. I'll say this. So first of all, uh, I, I wouldn't say that I turn off my brain, but in a sense I do. In a sense, that's right. In a sense, it's obviously the acting is a, a particular style to it. Um, I <laughs> That is uh, so well said. So well said. <laughs> it's um, But, you know, to me, the film has a kind of magic to it mm. where it's not about being um, – it's not a masterpiece in a traditional sense – I think it could be better on its own terms in certain ways, but it's also, you know, it could be better on other people's terms without question. But I think it captures something. And it's what I enjoy when watching the film is more about what it does capture as opposed to what it lacks. I think you're totally right. I mean, I I love what you said of like, it has, it's magic. And so here's here's my thinking on this. And so um, of of course the movie is is low budget. It was made on a shoestring. And and it's part of actually what I really sincerely love about the film. The film, I, I I'm gonna I, I'm gonna say that Helen Lauder is is New York's Fellini. <laughs> so you're seeing all these. You see, like I don't know a film like, really that does do that grime scene in in a more authentic way than this. Like I feel it. Like I was recently watching Minority Report again, and and there's so much to enjoy about that film. And the, you know, there's like the the sort of nasty uh, apartment hotel where um, Tom Cruise is getting his eyes taken out, and it's like, oh yeah, this is how Hollywood does grime. 
the sandwich is rotten. And it's like, you can tell how expensive the grime was. You know, you can tell how much money and effort and hours went into making something looking moldy. But this, this movie is like, no, this is, they couldn't make it look better because of, uh, that's just, you know, that's just what they, what they've got. It's a real, the, the situation of poverty is real. Uh, and I, I actually love that about it. And I love all the weird faces of the weird actors who are not necessarily spectacular actors as far as realism goes, but I'm not looking for realism in this movie. I'm looking for a movie that has its own weird, distinct personality. And the faces are that too. The faces are strange. The people who live in that hotel who are staring in the background or will pass an open door in the background, or you see standing at the base of the stairs. There's a lot of weird, weird shots where people just standing, kind of looking up to a character who's in the foreground. And all the faces are not the faces that you'd usually see in a film. Uh, and, and I love that. I love that the settings, the people, and the characters are all these from this world that I don't usually get to experience in film. And that's something I think is fantastic. Well, I will say, and we'll get to this when we talk about our favorite scenes, you just mentioned in passing what I think I'm going to choose is my favorite scene, but we'll come back to that. And it's, and it's an unironic choice on my part, okay. <laughs> as opposed to, as opposed to the, the, the blob in the toilet. And, <laughs> and I would agree like the, the moments that I did sort of let go of judgment and just be like, Oh, that's fun. It, you know, when he's walking down Broadway and you pass all those shops yeah, of the yeah. old time. Fair, totally. I, I, I visit, I remember visiting New York, when I was still in high school, it was probably 87, 88. Uh, and, and it was still like that to a certain extent. And so that had a kind of nostalgic quality to it. Seeing the Twin Towers, obviously. Oh, yeah. Um, so there was there was that element of it. And I will say the, the Grotty Hotel, lest we forget its name, because if you need an establishing shot of the Hotel Broslin, uh, <laughs> there's like 47. <laughs> in this movie but uh it, it it does it does have that kind of uh almost kitschy this is a new york single room occupancy hotel with the weird cast of characters that populate it you know that that those kinds of things sure, those were fun yeah but i just couldn't get past a the what i felt was wooden. when you letting go of judgment remember when you said that when you let go of judgment how did that feel for you to let go of judgment was that did that feel strange? Was it like losing a a, a misformed tumor growing out of the side of you? Do you, uh, is that then, what it felt and like? And then it came back and strangled me. <laughs> uh, so it was easy to do because in those moments I wasn't on. I was not slapped in the face with poor filmmaking. Uh, so what? part of it is the bad acting, and part of it is this insane tendency on the part of this filmmaker and others who don't know what they're doing to break the, the cardinal rule of, uh, you know, get in late, get out early. Like, forget that. There are so many scenes in here where it's like, really, we have to sit through three minutes of, Hey, how are you? Oh, what brings you here? Okay. Goodbye. Uh, I thought like half the running time is, is I don't know. I, mean, I, I gotta, I gotta disagree. I gotta disagree with, I, I, I gotta disagree with you not not be, to be rude but because you're wrong the 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 acting you could call it wooden or you could recognize it as stylized that there's something going on that's sort of cool no acting i mean like we talk about real acting like no no we don't we don't go to movies for reality we go for something else and there's i mean there's i there's something i really appreciate about the the weirdness of this acting there's something kind of like that is constantly announcing itself to be something other than pure reality and this i kind of dig that and I don't know. I think 
there's there's so many shots that are so cool in this movie that was made for next to no money and even the banter the weird banter whether it's the guys like standing in the the tiny little lobby uh of the hotel like no it was suicide he called up a cab and then jumped out in front of or whatever like that's i love that all i love all the weird banter that you might be confusing poor filmmaking for style is all i'm saying but brett you were you were gonna say something (laughs) yep well i was gonna i was gonna jump in and say I also think as far as like um, the getting get out, I, I actually – one of the things I really like about the movie is the fact that the sort of dominant narrative from the beginning involves a guy walking around with a wicker basket. And the movie's called Basket Case. Mm. And it just involves people saying, hey, what's in the basket? And I find <laughs> yeah. that hilarious. It is but, hilarious. But that like is they, hilarious. they let it – I think they kind of like I, – I feel like the interactions are crucial to, to sort of setting up like – a, a certain degree of normalcy like he he interacts with people in a sort of like he goes into the doctor's office and he's having a conversation with a receptionist and she's like hey what's in the basket like that it kind of comes up when it ought to come up but there's a kind of tension there we kind of know something is coming but we don't know what um that i actually did feel like the there isn't a lot of wasted shots yeah i think that they move especially like the the um when they tell the backstory I love the way they pace it. I love the way he sort of where he places it in the overall uh, story arc. But I kind of feel like I actually feel like this is a somewhat well cut film as far as timing and pace is concerned. I also like the use of, of, of somewhat extreme camera angles. Yes. Yeah, me too. And cool staging, cool staging blocking. I would agree that the section of the backstory does actually move in a way that the rest of the movie does not feel like it moves in a similar pace. And it did feel a little, I felt a little more uh, sort of with the story in that section. And part of which was in some ways the, the distinct contrast in the ants performance. Uh, I don't know where they found her, but they clearly went to some sort of like Summerstock Shakespeare theater and found this actor <laughs> who uh, delivers her lines with this like, thespians enunciation that uh, especially in contrast to the father's histrionics in every scene that he's in that I found weird and interesting when she comes up to the attic and is basically saying, I know you just murdered your father with some very complicated instrument that you built all night in the basement just to cut him in half, but you know, come out now and let's read a bedtime story. Like that had the elements of, of horror movies that, that I can respect, even if it's not my thing, um, and it, it felt the closest the movie got to to solid filmmaking in that sense of suspense and interest and interesting characters and performance, despite, you know, obviously the, the terrible latex thingy that was supposed to be this sentient being. But the rest of the movie, it, it did it did do that for me. So wait a second. As far as interesting characters, so the film is 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 populated with basket cases, right? Like when we get to the doctor's office, not only Sharon, the 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 nurse, I think it's her name, but the 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 lady who's waiting to see the doctor is like, he gave me the wrong prescription. It's the second time it's happened. It started with this pain in my neck, and then everything was on fire. And uh, the weird lady who walks Dwayne up to his room saying, there was a lady who lived there before and she was always told us she was rich and she was hiding out. Then one day she dressed up in a jewel and then totally walks away with, you know, without a single word otherwise. And the the fellow who lives on the floor below who's always wearing the pink nightgown, like it's filled with basket cases. It just happens to be that Dwayne, who looks the most normal, 
of any of the people that we encounter is actually got the, the weirdest basket case situation. And uh, and that's my kind of, how do you not love all those characters? Like the guy behind, this is not a hotel. It's a madhouse or a zoo or whatever he says. <laughs> For a moment, that scene of him and that line on that staircase jumped ahead of the the blob in the toilet, but but did not actually make the cut as my favorite scene. But I liked that. I liked that moment. Oh, good. Me too. <laughs> so, so. Uh... It seems like you love this movie. The more you talk about it, it's pretty clear that if you just just go with it, you love it. Well, I I said it was defendable as a comedy. Okay, but so I have two two questions for you. One, and and I know how you feel about mm-hmm. defining the genre, but this movie is not scary. Like it's not. There's it's it's horrible. Mm-hmm. There's horrible things that happen, but none of the 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 violence in it is really scary. It's more just. Well, that's that's silly and fake. The big rubber hand and the blood splurting and the the one leg falls one way, the other leg falls the other. I mean, it's it's a mockery in some ways of any attempt at genuinely trying to create a sense of this is really happening and I should be scared. Or am I missing something? Were you scared so I, by this? I, I agree that there's nothing scary about the movie. However, I think it's a great movie to pick when it comes to talking about the genre and what kind of characterizes horror movies for the following reason. Why do I feel like, why do I feel like Brett, you like prepared this? Like you've been waiting for this moment. Well, I I knew I was going to come on here. And so I thought about this and I've also been listening to the podcast enthusiastically. Maybe you should prepare sometimes, Russell. How about that? (laughs) So, but this is like in thinking about this movie in the context of the podcast, that was one thing I thought was, I, I knew this would come up, but I did think, ah, this is actually a good, it, it is a, you're right, it's a funny movie and it's not scary. And at, at no point when I watch it, do I actually feel scared. You've been talking how, about how, you know, you can, in some sense, characterize horror movies functionally. So like a, a comedy is a movie that aims to make you laugh. A sure. horror movie is a movie that aims to frighten you. And this one doesn't seem to really fit that. I think there's another aspect. I mean, there's something correct about that. I think there's another aspect that which actually I think points to the title of your podcast. Um, so if you think about the the end of the book Heart of Darkness, mm-hmm. the movie Apocalypse Now, where that main character it has sort of descended into this base animalistic id-like state of mind and is sort of reflecting on what is inside all of us, but it, something that's so foreign, something that requires a sort of long dark journey. To, to come to that there's something sort of foreign from our ordinary civilized mode of being. And the response is the horror, the horror. It's not about being scared of something in the traditional sense of like the, the jump scare type, like feeling afraid. There's something about like a perversion of norms that's unsettling. And I think one thing that horror movies as a genre do well is they aim to unsettle and but I also think there's something about the foreignness of what we're seeing from what we ordinarily encounter. So if you had a movie that involved, say, a stalker terrorizing somebody, trying to break into their house, trying to kill them, it might fall under the horror genre, but we might characterize it as a thriller, let's say, or mm. a drama or something. It might very well be scary. It might be more scary than a lot of horror movies. But when you think about horror, there's often this otherworldly aspect to it, whether it's a monster, some sort of gore that we don't ordinarily encounter in our day-to-day lives, but something that sort of unsettles us and 
where it's not necessarily about being frightened. Right. But I think that the sort of comedy horror line sometimes plays on that unsettlingness. There's the uncanny. a tension there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's really, really good. Actually, you know, to, to actually to bring in a writer that I know Russell loves a lot. Uh, C.S. Lewis and I, I, writes about this in the same sort of way. He writes about there's a there's there's a certain awe aspect. Uh, for example, if you tell someone there's a tiger in the next room, they are afraid and they understand why. If you tell them there's a ghost in the next room, it's a different kind of fear. You know, C.S. Lewis was talking about like primitive humanity looking up at the night sky and having a constant level of Fear, which is something a little bit different than just simple terror. It's something that is the uncanny. It is looking into the void or the the the, the bizarre, I guess. And I can get on board with that. I agree. I even agree with you, uh, <laughs> because I do. I do agree. I think there is there is an element of of any movie can frighten you, uh, whether it's from a cheap jump scare or creating a certain amount of tension. And hey, those jump scares are not that cheap, okay? <laughs> they're always cheap. Yeah. But th- there's certainly an element, too, of the unsettling. So The Shining is a good example of a movie that deeply unsettles me. And I've mentioned that movie before. Yeah. Uh, Rosemary's Baby is another one that's deeply unsettling. There are many movies I have seen that that may or may not fall into the genre of horror that I find unsettling. And the reason they unsettle me is because they appropriately use the cinematic language to draw me into a world that I do not understand and don't feel safe, but only because I don't see the strings and I have been drawn into that world. The problem with this movie is that it it has no power over me to unsettle me because it's just so fucking bad. Hmm. It's so poorly made that I all I can do is laugh at it. It doesn't unsettle me at all, unfortunately. It's got some... In, like, we already talked about... This I and Brett, I think that was a brilliant sort of insight. This idea of of a guy who wants to have a relationship, but he's afraid of this secret. That's a beautiful way to think about this movie. I just wish the filmmaker took seriously the craft and created a piece of art that I could lose myself in and go along for that ride and be unsettled by that proposition. You know, I, I think maybe this is this is a sort of a, a fundamental. Uh, thing that you and I have had through years, but it, definitely in discuss, discussions on this podcast. In this film, I, I can feel, I see the strings and I love seeing. I, I, that does not take away the, the brilliance of the film. Um, I don't need to be tricked into thinking something is really happening in order to enjoy it as art. The artifice being there is fine by me. In this case, I can almost feel the gleefulness of this crew of people for barely any money, if any at all, putting together these shots, forming this <laughs> this crazy looking monster and just having a blast with the gore, with the scares, with the scenes. Um, and that's, for me, that's part of the magic of it. That's, that's part of the fun. Well, I think what you're describing is the distinction in theater between a kind of Brechtian yes, approach to theater totally. yeah. and a more sort of classical approach. And I, that's probably why I'm not a huge fan of Brecht. I, I respect Brecht, and I've I've enjoyed many Brechtian productions, but I, almost always in a kind of detached, almost academic way, where I can sort of intellectually say, "Oh, that's clever," but I'm rarely ever moved by them. And this is also where I feel like this conversation that you and I have had for 25 years, and now have had on for you know public consumption for the last few weeks, is really not about me saying. Anyone who likes Brecht is a Philistine and should not go to the theater. Like, I get that that is 
a taste thing. That yeah. That is that you and you enjoy that. And, and I, I don't have a harder time uh, allowing myself to enjoy that kind of thing. But there is one more point I want to make or question I want to ask. Cool. And it has to do with something I referenced earlier. And that is, it's not the final scene, it's sort of the penultimate sequence. And that is the the rape murder mm. of, of the love interest. How did you experience that scene? And because for me, I felt like, fuck you, filmmaker. You did not earn the right to have that shot of the blob squirming around in the blood of that woman's vagina after strangling her in that POV porny shot of sexual violence. It made me angry, Mm. frankly. Um, A a movie that didn't seem to take itself so seriously all along would treat a woman that way on screen. And maybe I'm being too prudish. Maybe it's the 80s. Maybe I shouldn't care so much. But did did you have any similar kind of reaction to that? No, I think that's that's valid. So, you know, it's funny. This is a, a more of a difficult film like I said to earlier on, to sort of defend in the realms of horror. And partially it is like, I, I wonder why I enjoy this film so much. And it, it made me sort of think about it. And it, I agree even what we were saying earlier, like, well, the scares, I mean, I get kind of scared <laughs> when Belial jumps up and, and yells. His, his, he scares me a little bit. And, wait, wait and, when, he jumps up, when he jumps up on the windowsill, I did, that was a jump scare. Yes. I, I did, I, I did when jump he jumps up the window skill and looks out of this, and his voice is <sighs> Every time he breathes is scary. And that, but there is something I watch that I'm I'm more gleefully giggling throughout this film. And 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 it's even at the stuff that that Brett was mentioning, that sort of it maybe it's a thing of like, oh, the horror, the horror that some of that when we see is like, oh my gosh, I, that's pretty funny too. Maybe it's you know, it's gallows humor a little bit, but I don't know. But when at that particular sequence, of course, it it takes it to this darker, darker level. It also takes it to a dream-like level even beforehand because, interestingly enough, we're kind of experiencing most of that uh, rape death, rape murder, through a sort of dream sequence, you know, where we see Dwayne running uh, naked down the streets and is he there? No, he's not there. So it gives us a sort of strange distance from it. But all that to be said, that I think that sort of helps a little bit of give us some distance. It's, yeah, it's, it's... Uh, pretty horrific and i it's, it's it would be hard if not impossible for me to argue to say the film earned that i don't i i don't know if i could could you brett can you say can you defend it <laughs> uh, no fair enough i no i would agree with what you said i mean i um uh, yeah i think it's i actually do think that the the dream sequence leading into that raises this question it raised a question in my mind as i was watching it how much of this is like what's actually happening within the world of the film. And it wasn't totally obvious to me as I'm watching it because they're telepathically aware of what the other one is doing. Like maybe there wasn't anything in the basket ever. Is that what you mean? That's not what I meant. Oh, Uh, (laughs) like he doesn't have a twin. That's possible, but I, that wasn't what I meant. But yeah, oh, yeah, and yeah, stop yeah. trying to be an amateur amateur <laughs> philosopher. There's a professional here. <laughs> but but I, no, I think it's absolutely fair to be uh, queasy about that, and f- even just from a filmmaking perspective, but also as a viewer. Fair enough. But I, yeah, I guess I, as far as the reaction to it, I think, yeah, within the context of the dream sequence that preceded it, and you kind of feel like it's about to be this culmination, and the whole film is leading toward this reconciling of the tension between uh, Dwayne's attempt at having a relationship and his, with a woman and his relationship with his brother. It was, to me, it's the, I mean, the question of what, what exactly is going to happen and 
what exactly you're watching and what really is happening. They were sort of bouncing back between the two of them. So I, yeah, I think it's, it's, um, it, it's fair to complain about that aspect of the genre. Yeah. I mean, you could say, if I was to tell you a story, like, uh, here's a story about someone who is releasing their id. The id comes out in monstrous forms, and they feel that they are letting their id out for righteous causes, to kill people that we all agree are bad guys, right? So, like, someone's like, I've got an id superpower. I become the Hulk, or I become Superman, I become a superhero, and that power can kill. And when I come become my superpower, I let go and let my id go crazy, and he goes and kills all these people that everyone recognizes as bad people and deserving. It's just it's it's just as deserves. But the sort of message is, if you let your id out, then what happens when that id keeps going? And like, oh no, now that same power has destroyed the very thing that you loved. On paper, there's there's a way to write that and go, ooh, is that a Greek myth? Yeah, no, absolutely, and that's why that's why my complaint is is not is not that a movie can't do that, right? It's that I didn't think this movie or this filmmaker had sort of earned the right for that kind of imagery in the way that he filmed it. That's just again my opinion. So you're probably you're probably not going to watch Fra- Frankenhooker. <laughs> His other, some of his other films, like uh, probably, probably not, probably not, unless we we choose Frankenhooker for the next film. I mean, apparently, I am at your mercy. So, who knows what you're going to do? But uh, we should probably sw- shift into favorite uh, scene, worst worst scene, no, least favorite scene. Yeah, and there were, you know, there were a couple that I could have chosen in this in this movie for your favorite scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I as I said, uh the the twin in the toilet was was one. Mm. The guy on the stairwell saying this is a nut house uh was another just for pure kitsch value. But honestly, a shot that I actually really appreciated in terms of the cinematography, the performance, the blocking, like all of it was at, what's the name of the love interest that that Dwayne uh the I think it's Sharon. Sharon. Okay. So Sharon is, has has uh, he's thrown her out of his room um, when she's seen the twin, and she's going down the stairs, and he's got some of the denizens of the hotel placed strategically on the landing, and then at the very bottom, and there are these pools of light, and she stops and she turns back and she yells Dwayne, and it's a kind of beautiful shot, uh, the way it's lit, the way she moves in and out of the light. Even the way she screams Dwayne reminded me a bit of Catherine Ross in The Graduate uh, screaming uh, Ben's name. Um, I Honestly, that's what I thought of. So uh, so I thought that was, you know, sure. uh, take that moment and, you know, expand it to an hour and a half. What, one of my favorite shots. I love that one. So there, there you go. There's my favorite my favorite scene. Well, okay. Wh- one of my my least favorite. And I'm just going to go ahead and, and leave the, the ending scene because I think we had a discussion of that. But that is that that ending scene I, I or the, the penultimate scene. I, 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 I that would probably rank there, but I, I, there's one scene where it's when young Dwayne is, is sort of out of bed and he realizes, Oh my gosh, my brother's been removed from me, but he's still talking to me. And he goes to find him in a, in a, in a trash bag and he gets to the trash bag <laughs> yeah. and the trash bag kind of moves. And I was like, Ooh, cool. And then, it, then you see the hand kind of coming out of the trash bag. It's like, why don't you just let it, just let the trash bag move. <laughs> we, we didn't need, we got it. We understood. <laughs> um yeah it was a it was a hefty it was a hefty bag commercial and that was was that other guy's bag (laughs) it's really weak i'll I'll also add in a similar uh scene that i think could could have been better is just in the very beginning of the film 
when the uh, doctor kind of runs outside and you see a tree move. It's <laughs> just funny. It's just funny. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. Oh, I, 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 I automatically just saw the PA in the shadows yanking on that branch. Um, oh, but, oh I think PA. it's so sweet of you to think there were PAs. Like, <laughs> good chance. That was... What's the name of this director? What is I can't even remember his name. Heckenlauter. Heckenlauter. Heckenlauter is his name. Frank Heckenlauter. And and something to know, just so we're, you're aware, a little bit, and then I will wrap up about just the history that this plays in, in in horror history. This film was dedicated to Herschel Gordon Lewis, and Herschel Gordon Lewis um, made a lot of like very schlocky, uh, very outrageous horror movies in the '60s and in the '70s. With, that were made for drive-ins um, and they uh, are ridiculous and, and including blood feast might be his most famous one. And, uh, and so this is kind of an honor. I think he was, you know, making it an honor of that, of these films that went, that, that never really had wide theatrical, you know, basket case had its biggest, it played midnights for years and then it had its biggest cult following probably in the, the VHS world in the same way that Brett saw it on a shelf as a kid. Um, and Herschel Gordon Lewis before that had his biggest thing probably in these drive-ins that needed movies. They wanted things that would you couldn't see in the movie theater. And so you had to go there. And that's a, that's an interesting place of where horror movie has filled in the gaps, willing to do things or wisely or not uh, willing to do things that, other filmmakers would not do well uh i'm just thankful that you didn't run through the various incarnations of basket case as a franchise uh it's glad i'm glad to know there's only one of these no 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 this basket case 2 came out in 1990 no shut up shut up and basket that's the horror movie they they survived that fall they survived that fall and uh and they go on from there basket case 3 uh, the progeny, Belial, Belial or whatever, he has babies and now he has to fight to keep them alive. Uh, no, so, and that they're all three are made by Frank Helen Lauder. You're making this up, right? I, I am like not. Like you just improv. Nope, no, 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 no. I have not seen Basket Case 2 and 3, but uh, but I, I think I probably will. Brett, have you seen these other iterations? I have not seen them. I have only seen the original. Uh, but yeah, now, uh, definitely. I've got to see too much. Got to see. There's some gleeful filmmaking here. Gleeful. And that's the horror. <laughs> so uh, as usual, you can find uh, Owen on Twitter. Yes, at Owen uh, underscore Edgerton. So O-W-E-N underscore E-G-E-R-T-O-N. And Russell, we can find you on Twitter. At Russell Sharman. Brett, is there any way that people can reach out to you on the social medias? Not at all. Excellent. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, don't look for me. Don't find me. Right. <laughs> I can. Do you want to do a call out to your student? Or is this just going to get you in trouble? Yeah, it'll get me in trouble. Okay. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks so much for joining us. Brett, you've been uh, a savant, a a voice of wisdom in this cauldron of despair (laughs) called horror. Uh, I appreciate you coming on and helping us out. Thanks for having me.